Hey everyone, I'm Michelle Spillane, one of the worship leaders here at Sanctus Church, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for the message today. Hey everyone, welcome to the second last week in the book of Romans. Uh, My name is Joel and it's a real privilege to be sharing with you today. If you know me even a little bit, you probably know that I've got two kids. Uh, Nicole and I have two girls. Sophie is just about to turn five, which is crazy. And Maisie's a year and a half old. And one of our favorite things to do as a family, uh, usually like after dinner or something like that, before bed, uh, we'll go for a walk in our street together as a family. And uh, there's one thing that pretty much happens every single time we go for a walk. And uh, Sophie uh, will declare about halfway through the walk in the most dramatic way possible. She has this phrase she'll say, she'll say, Daddy, my legs don't work anymore. I can't walk. You need to carry me. And of course, I try to encourage her and I say, no, you can do it. Keep going. But inevitably and invariably, I end up carrying at least one of my daughters at least halfway home on this walk. We took them, actually we, just, we took Sophie on a road trip to Florida when she was 11 months old. Okay, so just let that sink in for a second. We took our 11-month-old daughter on a 24-hour road trip. And I, I specifically asked her to just sit there and enjoy the ride and just take in the scenery and just sit there in a car for 24 hours. Uh, but uh, turns out, another rookie mistake, uh, that was uh, pretty hard for an 11-month-old to do. It was around the middle of Pennsylvania when I turned off the side of the road just to take a moment for myself, <laughs> which ended with me buying two plane tickets, one for Nicole and one for Sophie, to fly home so that I would never have to experience that ever again. See, for Nicole and I, you know, we, we talk a lot about what we want our family to be like, and I think if there's one thing we want our family to have, it's unity, peace, Two words that I would not describe a 24-hour road trip to Florida with. And there's really only one way at this point in this stage of our family's life for our family to have unity. And that's for us grown-ups to like bear with our little girls when they're weak. Bear with them in their weaknesses. Because I don't think unity is an end in of itself. You have to have unity if you're going somewhere. But unity I don't think is the end goal. As a family, if we want to get somewhere together, if we want to grow and be united, we got to have unity. We have to be together. And as Paul says in our passage today, in the second last week of our series, really the exact same thing is true in the church. If you were with us last week, that was a tough conversation. I was down here in Ajax and I was kind of looking over my shoulder at points, making sure tomatoes weren't going to be thrown at the screen. But I tell you what, I'm not sucking up. I talked to John privately, but I I think there's probably very few other people who could preach Romans 13 like he did. I just thought it was really well done. I thought it was a very hard conversation, but kind of hard to argue with as well. I mean, that being said, as as pastors, we're here if you want to have conversation about it. There's there's lots that can't be explored in this kind of one-way communication format. But boy, I, I really appreciated how he unpacked that last week. Now, I think knowing John, he'd be the first to say, like, well, that's not the point. Thank you, though. I think he'd be the first to say, but what is the Spirit saying to our church? Why Romans? Why now? And what does he really want to get through to us? 
as we land here in the second last week of the series, Paul is reaching the end of his amazing exposition in the gospel in the book of Romans. He's covered so many different implications of the gospel. I mean, even just in the last few weeks, we've talked about our bodies submitting to government, submitting to authorities. Even the topic of debt has come up. But there's been like one through line through all these tangents that he's taken us down. And that's just very simply, it's the gospel that's the most important thing. What God has done for us through Christ and for the world is the most important thing in the world and in the life of a believer. It's the kingdom of God that matters. And to borrow a phrase that will come up in the passage today, it's the work of God that has to take priority in our lives. The work of God matters more than what we do with our bodies, than our political views and who we vote for, our money, our influence, online presence, resume, education, reputation. You name it, all good things. But it's the gospel that has to take precedence. As Tim Keller always says, it's kind of his catchphrase, the gospel changes everything. And and that's why Paul has been taking us down all these different applications because there should not be one area of our lives as believers that the gospel doesn't impact. So with that in mind, and with everything in mind we've studied so far in the book of Romans, Paul begins to summarize as he gets to the end. So listen to what he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, this is not even the full verse. This is just half a verse. But there is so much here in this verse. Paul does something very interesting. And for the first time in a little while, he puts himself into the instruction. He changes the tense. And he says, we who are strong. And it's interesting because after all this time, he spent talking about how there's there's no difference between Jew or Greek, slave or free. He says that there are actually two different types of believers within the church. I mean, this might just be as much of a hard word as last week. You might be thinking to yourself, like, well, which one am I, Paul? Am I a strong believer or a weak believer? John touched on this briefly last week. And and again, this sermon really builds on that one. So go back and listen to it if you didn't. But in between chapter 15 and 13 from last week, we find 14. And the idea of the strong and the weak comes from chapter 14. Listen to what he says at the beginning of this chapter. He says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. I really, really love the phrase, by the way, disputable matters. What he's saying really, again, is that the gospel matters the most. We might say in our context, like what the Apostles' Creed declares, the non-negotiable tenets of the faith requires absolute uniformity. We've got to believe on these things. But beyond the primary doctrines, our goal is not uniformity, but unity. We're not going to agree on every secondary issue, or certainly these tertiary issues, or any issue you want to make into an issue. We're probably not going to agree on all these things. And Paul says, that's okay, that's okay. But instead of quarreling over it, We should accept those who we disagree with over disputable matters because our gospel unity matters more. So he begins to introduce this idea that in the church we've got the strong and and the weak. And the strong must accept the weak. And all of us should not quarrel. 
Speaking of chapter 14, he's talked about this. Listen to what he says about the danger of quarreling over these kind of matters of conscience. He says very simply in in verse 20, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Now, in terms of the sake of food, this was a contextual issue that they dealt with probably much more than we did. But I would rephrase this verse in our context to say, do not destroy the work of God over disputable matters, over the things that don't matter enough to break up our gospel fellowship. See, the stakes are high. Literally, the work of God can be destroyed if we allow these disputable matters to become primary and to become issues that we quarrel over. That's just the first half of verse 1. He keeps going. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. In the Greek, the best way to interpret the failings of the weak is to say literally the the weaknesses of the weak. It's like the weakest part of the weakest believer. It's like the sin that you just can't break loose from. Or that mindset or attitude that you just can't change. The, The blind spot that you can't see. Or really, I think you could also just say it's just the general immaturity of some believers in the faith. Maybe you're new to the faith. Maybe you haven't grown as much, but like this could be very normal. But Paul says in the church there are people who are weak and and it's our job to bear with them in their weaknesses. Paul says, bear with them in that. One scholar said there's there's like a force behind this word. There's emotion in it. Maybe even pain in this word. The Greek word bear can mean to like endure and tolerate, carry and support. It reminds me of what Jesus said about the number of times we should forgive somebody over and over, endlessly. And it also kind of reminds me of carrying Sophie home on a long walk. You're literally tolerating and enduring and carrying her when her, you know, her legs don't work type of thing. Scholar Douglas Moo, who just so happens to have the most awesome name of any theologian that I've ever ever come across, says the strong are actively and lovingly to assume the burden that the weak are not able to carry for themselves, moderating their own conduct as much as possible with them. He's referencing this idea also found in chapter 14 about what Paul calls a stumbling block. It's like something that causes another believer to trip and fall. I mean, the classic example that's been in church conversations for decades would be, you know, if if your conscience allows you to drink alcohol, you should probably not drink alcohol in front of a recovering alcoholic because you're, you're, you're like, maybe unintentionally, but you're like laying a trap for them to fall into. This is something that they may be weak towards, and it's your job as a strong believer to moderate your own behavior so that you don't put other weaker believers in a compromised position. Douglas Moo goes on. Again, he says, Thus, when the strong bear with the weaknesses of the weak, they don't seek to please themselves, but their neighbor, hoping to build them up. Build up is like the word that we get in the New Testament called edify. We find that all throughout the New Testament. And it's the same purpose that spiritual gifts exist, which says in the Bible to edify the body of believers. This word edification, it literally means the instruction or improvement of a person, either morally or intellectually or in other ways. It means to support and supply moral support and uplift. 
I'm preaching this in the studio here in the Ajax building. And if you've ever been here before, there are these big columns in the lobby made out of cinder blocks that are incredibly strong, and they hold up the ceiling in the lobby, like they hold up the roof. And if they weren't there, the ceiling wouldn't be able to stand up by itself. They are literally uplifting the ceiling. And I think we as strong believers, we who are strong believers, we are to be like load-bearing like those pillars in the lobby. We should bear the weight so that the weak don't always have to do it. And we don't do it just to provide relief, but also for their improvement so that they can become strong. Good edification will actually strengthen the weak. And as John Stott says, it's, it's a very constructive alternative to demolition. If quarreling over disputable matters and, and laying a stumbling block intentionally or unintentionally in front of another believer, if that can destroy the work of God, edification that comes from supporting and, and, and bearing with the weaknesses of the weak is a good use of our strength. Now he takes us into the next section, Douglas Moo again, with this third and final quote. He says, When the strong act in this way, they are following the way of Christ, who did not please himself. Paul now shifts, as we approach verse 3, into explaining why the strong should bear with the weaknesses of the weak, rather than pleasing themselves. Here's what he says in verse 3 of chapter 15. For Christ did not please himself. See, Paul's now getting back to the heart of the gospel. And these words that he's writing to the Romans foreshadow what he would write just a few years later in his letter to the Philippians. Some of the most beautiful words literally ever written. In fact, they were a hymn and they'd be sung in the church. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, he says in Philippians. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And your relationships with others have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, if we want to talk about the strong for a second, Jesus was like the strongest person who ever lived. He was like literally equal with God, which begs the question, how did he use his strength? And as this passage and the whole uh, scriptures show us, he, in his strength, he didn't use it to trample the weak. In fact, instead of trampling the weak, he made a kingdom out of them. He went and found these loser fishermen, basically, and created an entire movement around them that's still going and still thriving today. He didn't just tolerate them. He just didn't support them when they were having a hard time. He went after them. And the gospel is that he went after us. He went after us in our weaknesses and died for the weaknesses of the world. Now, Paul kind of likes to go on these tangents. That's why Romans can sometimes feel a little confusing to read. He goes Old Testament on them in the second half of verse 3. He says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
Now, this in some ways comes out of nowhere, but it's a direct quote from Psalm 69.9. And it's actually one of the most quoted or referred to verses in all of the Old Testament. It was a centuries-old prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus. And it literally means that the insults of those who insult God have fallen on Jesus. When Jesus is on the cross, he is literally bearing the insults and the condemnation and the sin of the entire world and all of history. Instead of going towards God, they go to Jesus. And instead of the penalty going towards us, they go on Jesus. Paul's point in bringing this verse in is that Jesus bore with the weaknesses of the weak to the greatest extent imaginable. He literally bore the sin of the world on the cross. And he did it, by the way, when we proved we did not deserve his grace and forgiveness, but he came after us in our greatest moment of weakness. We covered these verses months ago, but let's go back to them again. He says earlier in Romans, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, that word means weak. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still in the weakest moment of our weakest estate, that is the moment when Christ died for us. Now he goes on a kind of a deeper tangent, which he loves to do. He says, now that we're on the topic of the Old Testament, I got a few other things to say about it as well. And in doing so, he kind of like brings the whole thing home, like to the heart level. I think this, this is where in the passage, it kind of moves from an intellectual exercise like close to home. He says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now, this is, a, like, this is an amazing verse. It's, it's saying that the entire purpose of the Old Testament could be summed up in three, three words. It's for our instruction, which you could say is, is to help us. It gives us endurance and it gives us encouragement. And all these three things come together for hope. And this is the first of three times that Paul says the word hope in this passage. I mean, if that's what the Old Testament exists to do, we should probably read it. <laughs> we should probably read it like a lot, every day, all the time. I mean, help, endurance, and encouragement, hope. What does the world need more than that? That's what the world is crying out for. And Paul is saying that everything written in the Old Testament was written for these reasons. So we can go back and we can read Psalm 69 and see how it impacts our decision and our compulsion to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. Paul sums up what he said so far in this kind of mid-message benediction prayer. He's bouncing all over the place a little bit. And he prays over them. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in praying this, he acknowledges and, and demonstrates to them that really with, without God, what he's asking us to do cannot be done. We, we can't do this in our own strength. We can't keep bearing with the weaknesses of the weak instead of looking after our own interests without the power of the Holy Spirit. John had this great phrase from a sermon he preached a long time ago on this. He said, Jesus is the, both the pattern and the power. What that means is he, he showed us how to do that. 
He demonstrated. He was our model to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. He showed us his whole life was that. But not just an instruction. He gives us now the power to do it. Through the cross and through his ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit, we now have the power that Jesus lived with on earth in us. And that was the power that he used to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. So if we have that same power, we can do it, even though without his strength, it would be impossible. Now notice in this verse a very key phrase. He says that we should have the same attitude of mind, not the same opinion on every disputable matter. Now, I think that's a huge relief, actually. I think there should be room within the church community, same like in my family, same like on any team at your workplace. There should be room for different views and disagreements. I sit on the senior leadership team here with a few of my friends, and one of the prayers that I pray when I'm asked to pray at the beginning of the meeting is just, Lord, help us to disagree well. Because I think that's what healthy teams do. I don't have a corner on all the best ideas. I need people to disagree with me. I want to be able to disagree with others. And if we can do that in a way that like, is accepting of each other and, and not in like this kind of quarreling way, I think that's what unity looks like. It's not uniformity. It's unity. And in order to have unity, we have to have the same attitude of mind. And he says these two very important words. Anytime you read these in the Bible, pause and think about it. He says, so that so that we can glorify God. See, unity, like I said earlier, is not the end. It's not the end game. It's, it's a means to an end. And our end as believers, and our end as a church, is very simple. It's right in our mission statement. It's to glorify God. It's to worship Him. And Paul is saying that you've got to have the same attitude of mind if you're going to glorify God as a body of believers. You've got to be united as a family if you're going to get anywhere. You've got to be united as a church if you're going to do all that God has asked us to do. So Paul starts working now towards kind of his final application and, and summarizes what we are being asked to do here in verse 7. He says, Then accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in order, again, in order, same as so that, in order to bring, bring praise to God. He said, like, what I'm asking you to do is very simple. Just accept each other. Even if you disagree on politics, even if you have a different perspective on what happened in our world and in our country these last three years, even if you have a different stance on like something like women in ministry or a different opinion on another disputable matter, things that are not the core tenets of our faith. And by the way, just a quick side note, make sure your definition of a disputable matter matches the Bible's definition. We don't get to decide what a primary issue is. We have to check ourselves under Scripture to say what is a core tenet of the faith and what is what the Bible would call a disputable matter. But regardless of our differences and disagreements on these things, we have to accept each other. And we have to even bear with each other. And remember, there's like a force behind that word. There's pain in there. It's like this is not an easy thing to do. But the stakes are so high. And the goal is unity, not uniformity. And, he's, and he gives the reason for why we should do this right here in this verse. He said, we accept others simply because Christ accepted us. And we remember back in Romans 5, right? That Christ accepted us not because we were right 
and we had all the best ideas, and we had cleaned ourselves up, so we were so impressive to him. It's actually the exact opposite. While we were still weak, Christ died for us. So once you begin to understand the gospel, a question emerges. And it's a biting question. And and that question is, how can you receive that gift of God of salvation through Christ when you were the one who was weak, when I was the one who was weak? How can you receive that grace and not give it to other people? If Christ can accept you, if he could accept me when I was at my worst, when I'm at my lowest, we are then compelled by the Spirit of God to do that towards other people. He just reminds us, don't forget, Christ, I'm asking you to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. Well, Christ bore with us literally to the point of death. And again, he's getting somewhere with this. He did it, and in doing so, he glorified God. It was like Christ's ultimate act of worship, giving himself up on the cross, moderating his own behavior for the sake of others. The same is true for us, except thankfully we don't have to go die on a cross. But we do have to die to ourselves. We have to put the weaknesses of others ahead of our own strengths. And when we do that, that is a beautiful spiritual act of worship. Paul begins to end the passage here in verse 8. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, here's the big point, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now this like really scales everything up about what he's talking about. So if you have like a family member or a friend or a colleague who doesn't know Jesus that you're praying for, what I'm about to read and explain to you really, really matters for them. Now Gentiles, as many of us will know, these are people outside the family of God. At this time, they were, they were non-Jews. But we can think of them here in this passage as people who don't know the gospel, people who are lost. I mean, do I have to tell you that the world needs Jesus? The world needs Jesus so bad. And guess what else the world is doing? They're watching us. The world is watching. And what are they going to see when they look at us? What are they going to see when they look at the church? They're going to see division and arguments and tension and toxicity. And nobody wants to stay in the same church for more than a couple years and they go to the next church. Is that what they're looking at? Is that what they're going to see? They say, these guys don't even like each other. Why should I go and be a part of that? It's like in a family, when, when mom and dad aren't getting along, the kids feel it. And it's like, really? Like, is that when they look at us as a church, is that what we want them to see? Or what if it was different? And when we accept each other and bear with each other's weaknesses and bring glory to God, then what if we can show the world that Jesus is actually worth worshiping? And His way, the way of weakness, is actually the path to life and the path to unity. See, our, our influence in the world is critically hindered when we are divided as a church. I tried to Google this week how many denominations there are. I, I just gave up. I was like, those numbers can't be real. It's like 10,000, 40,000. I, I, like, I didn't even include it in my notes. It's just mind-boggling. And I think when people look at us, 
It's like, how, why, why would I be interested in that? They want to see harmony. They want to see peace. They want to see something that makes sense. And if we are divided, I mean, that's just going to repel people. We've been talking a lot for years, but especially even in the last few months, about wanting God to come and bring revival into our church and see like awakening in our country. Now, we don't usher God down from heaven. He is a sovereign Lord. But we can make ourselves available for Him, and we can seek Him, and we can ask Him. The other thing that we can control is our unity. We put aside the disputable matters that are literally destroying the work of God. And when we understand that the gospel Paul is working out here for like 15 chapters, we can see that we are the ones who were weak that Jesus died for. He is the pattern. He is the power. And in his strength, when we look at another believer who's weak, or we discover that it's actually us who is the weak believer, then we accept each other because Christ accepted us. And when we do that, I think the world will start to see Jesus a little more clearly. And the work of God, rather than being destroyed, will be advanced. So some questions for us to wrestle through as a church community out of this passage. The first one is a bit of a tough question, but it has to be asked. Are you the strong believer or are you the weak believer? And you know, I, I think actually the question is a little bit more nuanced than that. Because I think, honestly, like I'm preaching, I'm a strong believer. <laughs> it's kind of like my job to do that. Uh, I'm strong in the faith. I've been serving God for a long time and I take it very seriously. But you know what? I have weaknesses in my life. There's been moments in the last three weeks where I've been pretty weak. And I'm not sure it's so cut and dry to be able to just say, like, this group of people in the church are strong and, and this group are weak. I think there are some of us who have been maybe seeking the Lord a longer time and reading the Bible faithfully. Maybe there's a maturity thing. But I think we're all marked by weakness, if not regularly, than certainly throughout different moments of our lives. But those of us who are strong in the faith, the instruction to us is very clear and very direct. And God is calling us to bear with the weaknesses of the weak people in our lives, the weak people in our church. So I just invite you just to even prayerfully start thinking, like, who are the weak people around me in the context of this passage? And what would it look like for me to kind of bear with them? Rather than being constantly annoyed, rather than distancing myself from them, and certainly rather than arguing and quarreling with them, on matters of conscience, on disputable matters that we disagree with on, Paul is saying that literally, we who are strong, we have more of a responsibility in the unity of our church than the weak do. It's like I have more of a responsibility on the unity of my family than Sophie does it would be pretty unfair for me to put that responsibility on the shoulders of a four-year-old. No, the grown-ups in the room have to take responsibility and say, we are not going to use our strength, whether that's a spiritual maturity strength, or maybe there's an influence thing that you're just a, you're an influential person and you kind of wield power in the church or in other areas, or, or financial strength or power dynamics in other ways. Whatever your strength is, we are not to wield that to our benefit. We are to actually moderate and limit the use of our power and our strength 
to benefit and edify the weak. And in doing so, we don't just provide temporary relief, which is necessary, but we actually begin to strengthen them so that they too can become strong. And as more people in our church become strong, we, we become stronger. And our missional influence in the world becomes greater. So yeah, this is not like a pressure thing because Paul's been through this. Like We need the Holy Spirit to do this. But the stakes are high, and this is like a really important thing. God has called us to reach a lot of people here at Sanctus Church. And we've got to be unified. We've got to be relying on His strength. And we who are strong, we've got to, we've got to take responsibility and put the, other, the others around us ahead of us. And to the weak, just on this point, I mean, to the best of our ability, we who are strong, we're here for you. That's why we run church services every week. That's why we provide pastoral care and, and connect groups and try to build real community. We're here for you. And when you go through moments of weakness like everyone does, this is what the church is for. And we're here for you. And our prayer for you is that you, in your weakness, that you would be edified and become strong in the Lord. And there's no judgment or shame, by the way, in being weak or having moments of weakness. Weakness is the way. Book by J.I. Packer. We see that in the life of Christ. So to the strong and to the weak in the church, God has told us what we need to do. Secondly, to my surprise, as I studied this passage, I think I discovered that the heartbeat of this text is actually hope. At first glance, it kind of reads like a to-do list, like here's how you need to be better. But that's really not Paul's point at all. It's a message of hope. Listen to how he ends the passage, skipping ahead a few verses. Verse 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's three times in 13 verses on a passage that is really kind of not about hope on the surface. Three times he said the word hope. But it is about hope. That is what he's driving at. That is what is underpinning this whole conversation. Because what he's asking us to do is really hard. Like, let's just say that out loud. This is like, to use an old preacher's phrase, like, this is a hard word. Had a hard conversation last week. There's more hard conversation this week. This is not easy to do. In fact, we just got, like, we can't do it. We look at the church and evangelicalism and Christian history, we can see, like, this is impossible. But apart from him, we can do nothing. But in him and in his strength, that's the only way that we can do it. I just invite you wherever you are, just to kind of, if you want, find a posture of prayer. So I'm going to close for prayer with us just in a moment. But before I do that, I want to just say one, one last thing and speak to a third group of people. Not the strong, not the weak believers, but you guys who maybe are not even a follower of Jesus at all. Maybe you're listening and you're not sure why or somebody sent you the podcast or the link and you're just listening it to them so that they'll uh, be happy with you. But I just want to say one thing to you. The book of Romans can feel really complicated, but it's really saying one thing. We were lost, but now we're found. A way has been made where there was no way, and there is hope to replace the hopelessness in the world. And his name is Jesus. You just have to trust him. 
Just a few weeks ago when we studied Romans 10, we said, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And for you and for the rest of us, I just pray this prayer from verse 13, that the God of hope would replace all of our hopelessness with all joy and peace as we trust in him, so that your life would not be marked with meaninglessness, despair, but actually overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for this encouragement. We pray for the unity of our church, that you would strengthen us, that you would help those of us who are strong to bear in the weaknesses of the weak. We pray for those who may be weaker in the faith or experiencing weakness, Lord, that they would be edified by your spirit in the body of believers, become strong in the faith, and that ultimately, Lord, we wouldn't quarrel over disputable matters, We wouldn't destroy the work of God by doing this, but we would actually be united so that we can glorify you in our worship and so that the gospel can advance beyond the walls of this church to do what you've called us to do. We ask for your Holy Spirit across our whole church to do this because we can't do it without you. Help us to have love and grace for one another and that you would really truly build your church here at Sanctus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. I hope this was encouraging for you and may God bless you. Have an amazing week.